Out of curiosity, how many of you, uh, while listening or reading along, were completely confused by what that said? Go ahead and raise your hands. Let's be honest. It's a difficult passage. I actually thought it was interesting. The first commentary that I picked up about it, the first sentence it says is, this is a terrible passage to try and explain. Uh, oddly enough, there were a number of other commentaries that said the exact same thing that this is a terrible passage to try and explain. So this morning, obviously, we're in the book of Hebrews. The last time I preached, I was preaching in the book of Hebrews. Uh, I finished Hebrews 5. Well, I actually started Hebrews 5. I apologize. And it speaks about Jesus being far better than the high priest. He compares him to Melchizedek, this, this high priest that was around when Abraham was still Abram. Before the law was actually written down, Melchizedek was this high priest that was chosen to be priest because of his character. I, I spent that sermon to explain a little bit about why that is such a significant thing, that Jesus is our greatest high priest. But because he isn't in the lineage of the priests, it still leaves him open to be in the lineage of our king. That sermon uh, essentially boiled down was to explain that Jesus is our eternal king, who we are to honor, who we are to obey, but he is also our great eternal high priest who intercedes on our behalf, who relates with us and understands our afflictions. This morning we're continuing uh, through the end of Hebrews 5, and I want to say a couple things before we actually dig into this. Like I said, it is a difficult passage. There are a number of commentators who disagree on how this is supposed to play out. In fact, if you go to the library and pull out different commentaries about Hebrews, you're going to get five different things. Uh, they all say something different about it. So let's look at this in a way that I think is going to be beneficial for you. Uh, instead of coming with it, with presuppositions, what we think we know about this passage. Let's look at this and read it how it says it is and take it for what it says. Any theological presuppositions that you might have, uh, if you're Calvinist or if you're Arminian, uh, whatever, doesn't matter. Uh, if you don't know what that means, even better. <laughs> don't worry about your own systematic thoughts. Let's just read what the Bible says. Because of how complicated this passage is, I'm going to ask that we read it again. So starting in verse 11 of chapter 5, we see, Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For every one that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But, but strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Chapter 6, verse 1 starts with, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, and of laying on of hands, 
and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this will we do, if God permit, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receives blessing from God, but that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for you. We are thankful for your word, that we can study it, that we can learn it, that we can know it. Father, I pray that you give clarity of thought, that every word I speak this morning is clear to those that hear, that this can be convicting to those that need to be convicting, this can be encouraging to those that need encouragement. Father God, we love you. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So let's take a step back. Let's look at the macro view of what's going on here in Hebrews. I don't know if you know this, but Hebrews is a letter. So uh, I don't know how you read letters, but typically when I read a letter, I try to read through the whole thing. Uh, it's, not very, it's not very commonplace to read a couple sentences and then put a letter to the side and then read a couple sentences later. So let's try and fit this in where everything else is. So I've already mentioned some of the context in Hebrews 5 that the writer of Hebrews is trying to connect Jesus to Melchizedek in, in a manner to show that Jesus is better than Melchizedek. If you know anything about Hebrews, you know that that's actually a long-running theme throughout much of the book. So if you were to go through Hebrews 1 all the way through probably Hebrews 10, you're going to see this common theme. Starting in uh, chapter 1, you'll see Jesus is better than the angels. You'll see... Uh, that despite the fact that angels are awesome and they can do amazing things, Jesus is still far better than that. As you continue reading through, uh, you'll see Jesus is better than Moses. Uh, you'll see that Jesus is better than the Mosaic Law. Uh, eventually, uh, before uh, chapter 5, you get to this point where we're told that Jesus is better than Joshua, talking about the Old Testament Joshua. It's a running theme that continues because Jesus is better. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is way more than what any of those other things offered. And he's running into this theme because in chapter 10, he's going to get to a point, and actually Chet quoted one of the verses from chapter 10 that talks about this, that our faith is worthwhile because Jesus is better. And that's the long-running theme through most of Hebrews 1 through 10. So the author of Hebrews is talking about this when he starts in verse 11. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing that ye are dull of hearing. Remember, in context, we're talking about Melchizedek. We're talking about how Jesus is better than Melchizedek, that Jesus is the high priest. Well, essentially, the writer here is saying that there are a ton more things that could be said about Jesus being the high priest. There are a bunch of other things that could be said about how Jesus fulfills that role. But they're difficult for him to say these things because the audience itself is dull of hearing. 
It's an interesting phrase, actually, that dull of hearing. We typically don't say that today. In fact, uh, our modern definition of dull wouldn't even make sense in this context. So when we think of dull, uh, we typically think of boring or we think of a knife not being sharp enough, right? Well, how would that sound in this passage? This is hard to be uttered because you are boring of hearing. Well, that doesn't quite make sense. What does the Bible mean when it uses the term dull here? And my best answer is actually found in Hebrews chapter 6, and verse 12. The author says that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That word that's translated as slothful in verse 12 is the same word that's translated as dull. So when we read this, we get the understanding that when he says that you are dull in hearing, he's actually saying that you're slow of hearing. You're lazy or you're sluggish at listening. In other words, they aren't actually absorbing what they need to absorb. They're hearing, but they're not actually listening. In essence, the author is stating that at one time they were willing to listen. At one time they did hear. But at this moment, they no longer are quick to hear because they are slow or lazy or sluggish in their listening. In verse 12, he gives an example of how this unwillingness to listen has affected them. Verse 12 says, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. The author states that these believers have been Christians long enough that they ought to be teachers by now. And that's not talking about the gift of teaching. And that's not talking about the office of eldership in which they are responsible for the teaching. This is talking about every believer who is mature has a responsibility to, to teach. Well, that doesn't mean you have to stand up here to teach, but it does mean you have to teach somewhere. So if you're wondering how that plays out in your life today, if you have kids, you ought to be teaching your children. If you have grandchildren, you ought to be teaching your grandchildren. If you're a college student and you're not even thinking about that, uh, you know, about having children yet, well, you have roommates. You can teach your roommates. You can teach your siblings. You can teach your, uh, in some cases, if you do it respectfully, you can teach your parents. There are people all around that need to be taught. And he's telling all of the believers in this local body that there has been enough time since they became a Christian that they should be able to teach. The inference is that anyone who is mature in their faith should be doing this. All mature believers should be teaching. But these people are still immature. They have need that someone teach them again the first principles of the oracles of God. The author says that they still need milk, and they can't eat the meat. Because as Verse 14 says, strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, to them that are mature. 
They need someone to teach them, again, the first principles of the oracles of God. And I would walk you through this, but the passage does it for me later on, so we'll get back to that. We're told in verse 13 that all that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Now remember, he is speaking to a group of people that have been Christians long enough to be matured. And quite frankly, I'm speaking to a group here that should be mature. Well, let me rephrase that. Most should be mature, not all, because some of you are new Christians. Now, let me assure you uh, that he isn't just saying this to a group of Christians that came to Christ yesterday. He isn't saying this to a group of Christians that came to Christ last week. He's saying this to a group that should really know more, and they should be doing more, and they should be mature. I do want to make this one caveat, because in, in, if you read this wrong, it makes it sound like if you're still learning the basics, that you're completely off base on that. And that isn't what he's saying. He's saying if you are actually immature, as in you are not fully grown in your faith, you should be learning the basics. But if you've been a Christian most of your life, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, you shouldn't have questions about whether the gospel is legitimate. And you shouldn't have questions about why we baptize people the way we do. You shouldn't have those types of questions because you should have already matured from that. He's confronting Christians that have been Christians for some time. And yet they're still feeding off the basics. Because as he says, they haven't exercised their sense to discern good and evil. In other words, they don't know enough in order to grow. I can't stress this enough, because I really don't want you to misunderstand this. He is not confronting a baby from drinking milk. He's confronting the grown man who's still drinking out of a bottle. David Allen says, in summary, Hebrews 5, 11 through 14 gives three indicators for the immaturity of the readers. First, their inability to teach others. Second, they need milk and not solid food. Third, they are spiritually untrained in distinguishing good from evil. The crucial thing to note here is that this paragraph is dealing with an issue of sanctification, not salvation. So there's no question as to whether these people are saved or not. The question is, are they actually spiritually maturing? Now remember, as we continue studying through this passage, that he's speaking to believers that have been around for a while, and I want you to remember that because if you don't, the last two points that he makes, the last two major points, aren't going to make any sense to you. The next thing that the author of Hebrews writes is this, in verse 1, chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. 
And this will we do if God permit. I think you can tell why I keep stressing to keep this in context. Because if you pick that up and you just read that one phrase, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, that should send up all sorts of red flags for every person in here. How can you be a Christian if you don't follow the doctrines of Christ? We have to keep it in context. Otherwise, it's going to turn into heresy, and we don't want to teach heresy. It sounds like he's saying to leave the gospel, to stop laying down the foundations of repentance, to stop teaching. Don't teach about faith, don't teach about baptism. But in context, he isn't saying that at all. Remember, at the end of chapter 5, he just finished talking about Christians that ought to be more mature. Christians that in their faith are immature, and they should be eating meat, but they're eating milk. So essentially what he's stating here is that the doctrine of Christ, the repentance from works, the faith toward God, baptism, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, is the milk. Well, all babies need milk. So he's not saying that we don't need those things. If you are a new believer, you need to learn those things. You need to hold on to those things. You need to grasp those things. But if that's all you know, and you've been a Christian for 50 years, you haven't done your duty at maturing spiritually. So truth like the gospel, truth like baptism, truth like faith toward God, truth like the resurrection of the dead are all things that we ought to know. But there are other things that we should know as well. Verse 1, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrines of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. He's firm on the foundation of the doctrines of Christ. I don't know if you remember, at the very beginning, I mentioned that there's an overall theme that Jesus is better than all things. He would never say, to ignore the doctrines of Christ. But his encouragement is that we shouldn't stop here. And really, his statement is that if that is all we know, the basics, that we're actually kind of immature and we need to spiritually grow up. <coughs> Excuse me. He never goes on quite to tell us what exactly we should move on to but I will make it a point to show you in verses 7 and 8 that we'll get to towards the end. He does mention the types of fruit that people bear. And I think in this context, we could probably make the argument that one of his statements is that we should move past just learning the basics and start serving and start bearing fruit. Spiritual maturity isn't just about intellectual knowledge. And you can know everything the Bible says and not actually be spiritually mature. James 2 says that even the demons know that God is one. But faith without the evidence of fruit is useless. Because true faith will always result in fruit. Knowing the basics isn't enough if we are to continue in this process of sanctification which simply means if we are to continue in this process of becoming holy like Jesus is holy, we need to know more than just the basics. 
We need to move on to righteous living, to serving others, to bearing fruit. And I could go on, but that really isn't his point here. True spiritual maturity results in service and in bearing fruit. If we are truly maturing in our relationship with Jesus, we will want to serve Jesus. Now, here's the more difficult part of this passage. This is the part of the passage that everyone has different opinions on. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to lay out all the different positions, and I'm going to hopefully represent them well enough that you understand why people think that way. And then I'm going to tell you what I think this passage is really doing. But first, let's read through it again. Verse 4, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it and bringeth forth herbs, meet for them by whom it is dressed, receives blessing from God, but that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. Do you understand why this is such a complicated passage? It's really, the complication comes in one phrase. In, at the very beginning of verse 6, if they shall fall away. That's the complication of this passage. <coughs> Excuse me. There are typically two major views to how this works out. And I mentioned them just briefly at the beginning. You have this whole Calvinistic idea, and then you have an Arminian idea. We don't even have to actually get into the argument about what each belief means. When it comes down to it, the argument here is about eternal security. Can a believer lose his salvation? And at surface level, this actually sounds like a believer can, right? Uh, it, it is very clear, I think, that it is talking about someone who has experienced salvation. So when it says, if they shall fall away, it gives this implication that, well, true believers might be able to fall away. And that's one of those major views. So either one, this describes what happens when we stop believing and we lose our salvation, or two, the person in this passage doesn't even believe to begin with. So let's start with that first one. This is that person who believes that salvation can be lost. That person would have no issue with this verse. They would read through here and think, if they shall fall away, oh yeah, yeah, people can fall away any day. They would think that this has no issue with their theology at all. And, and they are still Christians, mind you. Uh, if you think about it, these would be our Methodist friends. Uh, these would be our Wesleyan friends. Uh, the friends that typically tend towards more Pentecostalism would believe something along these lines. So for them, they would read this passage and think, someone who was once enlightened, someone who tasted the heavenly gift, someone who was a partaker of the Holy Ghost and tasted the good word of God is obviously a true believer. Someone who has repented and followed Jesus. And quite frankly, that is the easiest way to read this passage. So when they get to verse 6, 
that says if they shall fall away, they cannot be renewed into repentance, they would simply shout amen and move on. Because in their system, they believe that salvation can be lost. <coughs> Excuse me. There's an issue with this belief system. And in order for us to believe that we can lose our salvation, we actually have to avoid a number of New Testament verses. So for instance, John 10, 27 through 30, this is Jesus speaking, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Well, that definitely seems to imply that if you believe, if you truly believe, nothing will take you from God. Paul says in Philippians 1, uh, this would be Philippians 1, verse 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So if you are a believer and Jesus has started working within you, there is assurance that he will eventually finish the job. Well, if you lose your salvation, how can he finish the job? Once we do believe in the work of sanctification is started in our lives, there is nothing that can stop Jesus from finishing it. In 1 Peter 1, Peter talks about us being born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. How is our inheritance unfading if we can lose it? It seems to imply that our inheritance is permanent. In all three examples, so John 10, Philippians 1, 1 Peter 1, there aren't any qualifying statements. It's not, if you do this, I assure you Jesus will finish it. It simply says, Jesus will complete the work within us. Those that are believers and are being sanctified by Jesus and those who are true believers are destined to obtain that inheritance. Which means that this whole perspective that is speaking about the loss of salvation in Hebrews 6 is probably not the correct interpretation of this passage. Because there are other passages of scripture that would not agree with it. That doesn't mean that we uh, should go down to the local Methodist church and attack them because they believe something different. This just means they see it differently. The second perspective typically comes from people that believe in the eternal security of the believer, which I don't know if you know this, we believe in that here. We believe in the eternal security. This also would include our Presbyterian friends, uh, pretty much anyone who calls themselves Reformed would fit in this. Uh, there are a number of denominations that would fit in this. They would see this passage, and they would realize that it seems to contradict the doctrine of eternal security. So they would take time to explain different theories of what this could mean and how this works in our lives. So, for instance, there are a number of commentators that believe that this is a hypothetical situation. That this is what would happen if you could lose your salvation. There's an issue with this, though. I don't know if you noticed this, but this isn't a parable. This isn't figurative speech. Nowhere in this passage does it say that it's hypothetical. And nowhere in this passage does it 
make it seem like we could take it that way. It just says that someone who did believe but now rejects Christ has no opportunity to believe again. But because this is hypothetical, we know that that, uh, and I'm saying this from their perspective, if this is hypothetical, we know that it can't possibly happen. It's an argument from a lack of knowledge. The whole argument rests on thinking that this actually isn't talking about legitimate circumstance. This argument is just based on it being hypothetical, and we have no legitimate proof that it is hypothetical. Now, there are commentators that, that reject that idea, and they think that this is simply speaking about people who don't actually believe. That when it says that they tasted the good word of God, it is similar to how Jesus tasted death. Yes, he tasted death, but it was temporary. It was momentary, but it never quite resulted in true belief. <coughs> Excuse me. The issue with this idea is that in other passages of Scripture, well, the same phrases that are used here are used elsewhere to define a true believer. So let's take a look at verses 4 through 5 again. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, for those who have tasted of the heavenly gift, for those that were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, for those that have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. The word enlightened has its root in this Greek term for light, right? In other words, those that are enlightened now see the light. Jesus is that light. And when we believe in him and follow him, we become that light. That's from Matthew 5.14, in case you're wondering. The phrase, those that have tasted of the heavenly gift and made partakers of the Holy Ghost, well, the heavenly gift is typically used to relate it to salvation, right? That is what the heavenly gift is. Ephesians 2, verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And those that have been made partakers of the Holy Ghost would imply uh, those people in which the Holy Ghost indwelled. The Holy Ghost indwells true believers. So it seems pretty clear to me, at least, that this isn't talking about a loss of salvation. This isn't talking about a hypothetical situation. But this is talking about a legitimate Christian a true believer, a genuine believer. So the real question then is, what exactly is this talking about if it isn't talking about losing salvation? Remember how I had asked you repeatedly to keep this in context. What did we start with this morning? There is a need for spiritual maturity within the body of Christ. We're told to move on from the basics and keep growing in Christ. And that's directly before this section that's awfully confusing. So might I suggest that this isn't talking about salvation. This is talking about spiritual maturity. So what do I mean by this? If we're still talking about spiritual maturity in the believers of Hebrews, well, let's start back in verse 1 of chapter 6. 
Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it and brings forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed receives blessing from God, but that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is burned. Did you catch what I'm trying to pull out here? It starts off talking about maturity then it ends by talking about fruit from mature believers. To me, it doesn't seem like it's changing topics. It actually sounds like he's talking about people who are believers, but they're immature believers. But let me, let me stipulate that a little bit more. This isn't just any immature believer. These are immature believers who don't want to grow. So you might be wondering, what does he mean when he says it is impossible if they shall fall away to renew them unto repentance? And I tried to write out how, how I was going to explain this, and I ended up more confused than anything. So let me read how someone else explains this. The New American Commentary states this. Given the use of the word translated as to fall away in the Greek Old Testament, combined with the author's dependence upon the Old Testament here and elsewhere in the epistle, the word means to transgress against the Lord in a way that parallels what happened in Numbers 14 when Israel rebelled against God. Israel in the wilderness had become hardened in their hearts against the Lord. And this hardness culminated in their disobedience recorded in Numbers 14. The original readers of Hebrews were in danger of something similar. If they do not hold fast their confession of faith in Christ, if they disobey, if they rebel against the Lord and remain in such an unrepentant state, if they refuse to press on to maturity, God himself will not permit them to repent because of their high-handed and blatant sin that they have committed. God may make the decision that it is not possible for them to press on to maturity because of their disobedience, just as he did not permit Israel to enter the promised land for the same reason. Contextually, the meaning of fall away in verse 6 should be understood as the opposite of going on to maturity. In other words, if we take this whole section of Hebrews, as in we, we read all of it in one big chunk, like I've tried to do multiple times this morning, this isn't talking about us being able to lose salvation at all. It's actually talking about us not being able to be spiritually mature because we're refusing to listen. Which means that this passage is talking about a lack of spiritual maturity in the body of Christ. And that lack of spiritual maturity prevents them from receiving rewards, both here on this earth and eternally. And I see that in verses 7 to 8. 
For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and brings forth herbs, meat for uh, them by whom it is dressed, receives blessing from God, but that uh, which bears thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. The last two verses are describing plants that are planted in the same plot of land that receive the same amount of water for nourishment, but some of those plants actually grow good fruit, and some of those plants grow thorns and thistles. The comparison is this. Those that are spiritually mature, that show their maturity and their willingness to teach, to grow, to serve, are the plants that are producing good fruit. Those that are spiritually immature because they refuse to grow, though they receive the same nourishment and they receive the same plot of land and they receive everything just the same, they only grow thorns and thistles. And when the harvest is come, all that are planted in the plot will be harvested. They're all believers, but some will get their reward for their work, while others do not. Now, I understand that there's a ton going on, and I really need to wrap things up. So let's try and do this in a way that works well for you guys. How do we get application from this? Well, first off, the author of Hebrews mentions that there are two types of believers. There are believers that truly want to grow, and then there are believers that don't actually want to grow. So before I actually talk about those believers, let me ask one question for you. Are you a believer that wants to grow, or a believer that doesn't? If you are one that wants to grow, then the next question becomes, am I spiritually immature, or am I spiritually maturing? Well, walk yourself through chapter 5, verse 11. Do I know what the basics of Christianity are? Because like I've said through this sermon, he's not telling you to throw them out. He's telling you to keep growing which means that you actually need to know what they are before you keep growing. Do I know what it means to be a Christian? Do I know what it means when we say that Jesus is our substitution? Do I know why we baptize people? Do I know why we do the things that we do in a church? Why do we take communion? Why do we uh, sing songs? Why do we do these things? And if you find yourself lacking in this knowledge, the easiest way to fix that would be to first pick up a Bible and read it. Like, actually read it. Don't just say you read it and, you know, check off a box. Read it. Study it. Ask questions. If you are so confused that you don't know how to grow, ask for help. Find the knowledge that you're lacking in and make the effort to learn. Secondly, are you teaching other people about Jesus? You don't have to stand up here to do that. You don't have to lead a small group to teach. You don't have to do any of that. But you ought to be teaching someone about Jesus. And that can include your children. That could include your spouse. That can include your family. That includes your friends. Can you teach them about Jesus? Are you able to discern between good and evil? This is a pretty important point here. 
Can you figure out for yourself what is right and wrong? Serious question. Are you able to make decisions concerning morality? Because if you can't, you're not spiritually mature. Are you able to help other people make moral decisions? Now, for those that listen to all of that and think, well, I'm really immature, well, let's deal with that. Are you immature because you refuse to grow? As in, are you holding on to sin? Are you neglecting studying scripture? Are you refusing to pray because you have better things to do? Because if you are, that is why you aren't spiritually maturing. And for those that are spiritually immature because they're new, I am not condemning you, and neither is the author of Hebrews. He's actually encouraging you that if you are new, to start learning, to start maturing, to start serving, to start following God. For those that are spiritually immature because you aren't following Jesus the way that you want to, the way that he wants you to, or if you're not willing to deal with sin in your lives, well, this verse is a warning to you. The warning is this, that spiritual maturity is supposed to be normal in Christianity. It is normal for Christians to continue to grow. So if you would rather hold on to your sins than seek after God, and you'd rather disobey the commandments of Jesus to love others, to love him, to do the work of the ministry. Well, God might see fit to make sure you never actually do mature. And all of the good reward that could be given to you for growing in Jesus and serving him are all things that you would be missing out on. You'll be missing out on all of those rewards, but you'll most importantly miss out on this awesome relationship with God that is supposed to get better as you get older in your faith. For those of you that are spiritually maturing, and I'm saying maturing for a reason, it's quite simple, on this side of eternity, you will never mature the whole way. You should continuously be growing in faith. And if you disagree with me, you should check your spiritual journey. This actually serves as an encouragement for those of you that are growing. First off, there's a reward of trying to know Jesus and growing closer to him. There is good fruit both in this life and in the next for those that serve him. Which means that we shouldn't grow weary in doing good. For in due season, we'll reap a good harvest. So let me close off with this. Take some time this evening before we get back together and we eat a bunch of candy and dessert. Take some time after church, um, maybe after you eat lunch, and reflect on your spiritual life. Where are you in your spirituality and your maturity towards Christ? Are you growing or are you stuck? And if you're stuck, let me encourage you to fix that because it is worth fixing. I'm going to pray. Uh, we'll sing a couple songs. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for all that you do for us. Again, we're thankful for your love and your mercy, your grace, for everything that you do. 
And Father, I pray that every word I spoke this morning was glorifying to you. That we all leave here wanting to grow closer to you, wanting to mature, wanting to be believers that can discern right from wrong because your word has told us to. Father, I pray that you use every word I spoke this morning to convict those that need convicted. We love you, and we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.